Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvroski. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvroski. On this week's episode, we have a special presentation, if I say, may say so myself. It's my keynote from the Mainstream Conference in Melbourne, Australia. I talk about asshole bosses, leadership, mental health, and what we can do to become the leaders we've always want to have. Just a note is there are some elements of the keynote that can only be seen on video, and so I've dropped the link to the YouTube video in the podcast notes so you can check it out there. And then also I just want to make a trigger warning here. We talk about mental health and suicide in this talk. So if you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or if you struggle with mental health, please contact your local helpline or your therapist to get that support. The last thing is, obviously, if you'd like any keynotes, leadership development training, DEI, burnout, and more programs, head on over to EliteHighPerformance.com to find it all there. And then also, I wanted to say is with this talk, we put together a trust and psychological safety module for folks. It's free and you can access it. Just shoot me an email, rob at EliteHighPerformance.com and I can send you the link for that. And lastly, I'd love any feedback on the talk. I would love, yeah, if you shared it around your communities, it's incredibly important for me to share this message. And I really loved where the talk went. So definitely would thank you for that in advance. We at Elite High Performance specialize in building high-impact leaders who turn their teams into happy high performers that achieve their goals. So if you want more there, head on over to EliteHighPerformance.com. Everyone, I thank you so much for listening. And here's my keynote, How to Avoid Becoming an Asshole Boss. So we're going to have three keynotes for you now. Um, we're going to have Rob, the Canadian. Let's be clear. Rob the Canadian. Okay? There are two Rob the Canadians here. I met the other one at the lift yesterday. So he goes, hey, how are you doing? And I went, where are you from? <laughs> he said, Canada. I went, are you sure? Right. So anyway, so there's two Rob from, Robs from uh, Canada here. Um, and then we're going to have, um, after Rob, we're going to have uh, Jenny Stedman. So she's, she's going to be about building a resilient mindset. So while you're listening to Rob, and this is to Jenny, if you have ideas for questions, please write them down, because you're going to have a chance to talk to them on the stage, and your questions are always going to be better than mine. Um, but Rob is, uh, he's a, well, technically speaking, um, by his definition, he's a senior reliability manager. He's also an ex-pro water polo player. Uh, he's an expert in leadership reliability and also in suicide. So I just want to say, a, a trigger warning, that what we're going to talk, what Rob's going to talk about now, is deeply personal, um, and you should just be aware that that's where this discussion is going to go. But it's also something that I know all of us deal with, and especially um, maybe more so in your businesses than mine. Uh, something that needs to be thought about and considered and um, and worked upon. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Rob 
Kalvarovsky, uh, I know there's two W's, but they're actually V's. But he's from Canada. Okay. <laughs> so, welcome, Rob. It's tough when they enter you with, uh, we're going to go real deep in suicide today, but uh, no. I am so happy to be here in Australia. My fiance is happy to be here in Australia. The only one who's not happy with me here in Australia is my dog. This is Winston. Huh? Tech problem. There we go. This is Winston. <laughs> Winston's cute, he's cuddly, he's loyal, but don't let his cute exterior fool you. He is a nightmare to manage. Let me tell you what he did. A few weeks ago, we're out for a walk, and suddenly he just takes a beeline to the bushes, bites down, and starts pulling with all his might. When I finally caught up to him, I saw what he was doing. My 30-pound Labradoodle was trying to devour a 30-foot ash tree. And just imagine that this is an entire tree. And yeah, Winston loves branches. He also loves challenges. And I, I just watched him trying to chomp away at this tree, and I'm like, I need to get him to stop. So for the next 10 minutes, I tried everything I could to get him to stop. I asked, I begged, I pulled his leash, I yelled. Suddenly I gave up, sat down, felt frustrated, powerless. And I'm thinking, 20,000 dogs served in the US Army, rescuing drowning pilots, exposing enemy ambushes, taking messages across enemy lines. Two Australian dogs, Hori and Gunner, they alerted troops of incoming planes 20 minutes before human hearing could pick it up. Meanwhile, my dog's like, I've got a tree. <laughs> and as a leadership coach, I talk a lot about self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and empathy. And even after many years of training, still made a dog and a tree, made me realize that in this instance, I was a complete asshole. And I've noticed that other dog owners really, there's kind of four different types. There's the first type who are like, hey, in order to get your dog to comply, be more aggressive. Show them who's boss. That'll teach them. Other dog owners are like, you know, if you enroll them in some classes, upgrade their skills. That'll help them. They're the third dog owners who are like, fire your dog and hire a more competent dog like this German Shepherd. <laughs> and finally, they're the people who say, you consider journaling? To be fair. Those people say that about everything. <laughs> and yeah, I wrote it in my journal this morning. But seriously, all of these proposed solutions have the same base assumption, that the problem is with the dog. But what I realized is that this has nothing to do with the dog. And you might be wondering why I'm so concerned about how to manage my dog. It's because my greatest fear is that one day, Winston will walk up to me, bark, that's it, I'm out, and bolt right through the door. You know, just like in those movies where the main character walks into their boss's office, shouts, I quit. That's been on my mind a lot recently because of how many people are doing it in real life. 
They're even recording it. Have you seen these? This is Brianna and I quit. See, I quit. I quit my job. I quit my job and my friend filmed it all. So I quit? I quit. <laughs> you have to ask Chris for the champagne later. Um, these are called quit talks. Thousands of these are out on social media with millions watching and applauding. And you might think that recording a video of your resignation is a very Gen Z, very American thing. I can say that by being Canadian. Um, but quitting's not. That's everybody. The global wave of the Great Resignation is currently being referred to as job hopping here in Australia. But it's hitting retail, manufacturing, admin, professional services, healthcare, across generations, across the board. And you might also think of these people as overdramatic or entitled or a nuisance for employers. Or you could even say it's a desperate cry for help. These people didn't have anyone. So they chose to broadcast to everyone. But if you look at the comments, they all say the same things. Hey, your boss must be an asshole. I mean, to be fair, nobody quits their job going, my boss was so nice to me today. It's just so overwhelming. <laughs> right? And you know what? These commenters, they're probably right. Since 2021, no matter what country you look at, over 50% of the people who quit their jobs did so because of bad management. So most of us, we've either worked for the asshole or we are the asshole. <laughs> but you know what's really frightening? That statistically, at some point down the road, we're all gonna be a bad boss. So the question is, how do we avoid becoming a bad boss? Let's break it down. When we hear about a stereotypical asshole boss, what are some of the traits that you think of? Shout them out at me. Aggressive. Aggressive, yeah? Micromanager. Micromanager, yeah? Won't listen. Won't listen. I didn't, I didn't hear that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are really great answers and you'll find out shortly. And For me, when I think of a stereotypical boss, I think of Will Ferrell. I mean, no, not Will Ferrell, the actor, but he's a really great guy. I mean, I've never met him, but this Saturday Night Live sketch with Will Ferrell. So what do you think? I, uh, I think uh, I want the job. Fantastic. Oh, excellent. Great. So we'll give you a pass key and uh, assign you a desk and a parking space. Um, excuse me, Mr. Tarkanian. Why are you interrupting me? Well, I just thought that you... You thought? You thought you do not interrupt me! I am not what you to pull this amateur bullcrap, alright? I am a professional! Do you hear me? Do you understand me? Yes, Mr. Tarkanian. Uh, what was that about? Oh, oh, uh... I'm sorry to see that. She can, uh, she can be a real bitch. <laughs> I mean, that's fiction, right? Nobody does that in real life, right? I don't know if you guys watch hockey here, but...
that actually hits home with me. I, I used to be a polo coach, and I also had a coach throw a chair in the pool. Um, <laughs> so the stereotypical asshole boss is arrogant, unfair, and physically or verbally abusive. They set unreasonable expectations, and then they punish their people when they don't make it. And there's an incredible study that came out of Sweden last year. For the first time ever, researchers not only looked at destructive leadership in general, but also took a deep dive into what makes bad bosses tick. And it turns out those asshole bosses with the Will Ferrell traits were only experienced by 5.5% of the total workforce. Here's the graph they made. Every, every time. <laughs> if only I had a nickel back for every graph that didn't make sense. So the researchers compiled seven completely distinct leadership profiles. And yes, looking at this graph, you can tell it was Swedish research. Because the Swedes are like the IKEA of research. Great at assembling things, but good luck at making sense of the instructions. So. Let's simplify it a bit, because the results are actually really important. Here's the first boss that we talked about with the Will Ferrell traits, which we've named arrogant and violent. But there are many other bosses that less frequently resort to violence. But they're highly egocentric. They take all credit for themselves. They don't trust their people, but they do take credit for their work. These people are almost 20% of leaders. Have you had a boss like that? I have, and almost 20% 20 20 of people have. Then there are the bosses on the other end of the spectrum, the bosses that are too passive, like the cowardly boss, or also known as the ghost manager. These people, they avoid confrontation, they don't really show an active interest in the company, and when leadership's required, they're not there. You can identify these folks by key phrases like, that's not my decision, it's upper management. Or, I don't want to be a micromanager, you figure it out. <laughs> Actually heard that one. Then we have the messy bosses. They are bad at structuring and planning. They're bad at giving instructions and it starts to confuse their employees. And that's why to identify these folks, it's really just look for chaos in the organization. These leaders don't have priorities, they don't know what to do, and so their people are confused. And finally, rounding out the bad boss profiles, we have the combination types. The passive-aggressive bosses who will avoid confrontation, but they'll use threats and violence if it gets them the right way. And the passive egocentrics that will do anything to get ahead, and they'll claim all credit as their own, but they'll do so behind your back. The end result is shocking. Only one-third of the global workforce works for leaders who are low in destructive traits. And the rest, a full two-thirds, work for leaders who are actively or passively destructive in various ways. And 
Some of you, you'll be looking at these results and, these results and going, why change if it gets us results? And the truth is, it doesn't. Short-term results, maybe, sometimes. But the more a leader falls to the right on this graph, the more destructive effect they have on the workforce, which derails your company from the long-term goals and consequently the bottom line. And that combined effect is known as the global destructive factor. And yes, that does sound like a 1996 movie starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, who's trying to save Kylie Minogue from Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> that movie has my two favorite things, martial arts and Swedish psychological research. <laughs> Anyways, the profiles show a clear trend. The bosses with low amounts of destructive behavior are going to be the ones that succeed in the long run. And even the bosses who are messy and non-confrontational, they'll do okay. The rest, they're going to lower workforce productivity. They're going to lower workforce production and performance. And they're going to increase employee burnout. In short, the more destructive the boss, the more toxic the workplace. And as 20th century poet Britney Spears said, in her study on the modern employee's relationship to the workplace, I'm addicted to you. Don't you know that you're toxic? <laughs> and you could be looking at this data and say, you know, Rob, that's the way it's always been. And that might be true. But what has changed is employees' reactions. Just a few months ago, MIT released this study where they analyzed over 34 million online employee reviews. And today, when deciding whether to stay or go, toxic culture is 10 times more important than salary. You can't outpay a toxic culture. And I'll go a step further. The ramifications of a toxic culture is more than just increased employee turnover, lower profitability, and the potential that you'll be on the wrong end of the next viral CrickTalk video. Last year, the University of South Australia released this study, which says that toxic work environments increase employee risk of heart attacks and stroke, and also increases depression by 300%. And where there's more depression, there's more suicide. Toxic workplaces are literally killing us. And you might be wondering, how does this play out for us in heavy industry? I got bad news. Men in heavy industry commit suicide at two and a half to three times the rate of the general population. And here in Australia, in construction, someone commits suicide every other day. And it almost killed me too. When I started off in the working world, I thought I had it all. Up to that point, I'd done everything right. I was playing water polo on the Canadian Junior National Team. I was a three-time academic All-American, and I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree from MIT. Got a job as a reliability engineer in mining, and I stepped into the working world. 
my background was different. And that led me to finding savings that no one else did. It led me to saving the company millions. I thought I was on the fast track to success. I thought I was on the fast track to happiness. And then it all came crumbling down. My boss was a passive-aggressive manager. He was bad at instructions, he gave unclear, he flip-flopped, but nothing was ever good enough for him. His mottos were, don't walk, rock the boat, and we've always done it this way. And that's the real danger of destructive leaders. It's what they do in the long run. Passive-aggressive leaders are responsible for the highest rates of employee burnout and the lowest rates of job satisfaction. And that's what happened to me. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I'd spent my entire life looking for recognition and validation from my superiors. That was the survival strategy that I used. From the workplace, to the pool, to the classroom, the mask I wore was the guy who gets results. Reliable Rob. I didn't really know who I was. And I wore that mask for so long that I thought that I was him. And that was where my manager was able to start making me question myself. I questioned my job choices, then my purpose, and then whether my life had meaning at all. Now, a sinkhole is defined as a depression in the Earth's surface caused by the collapse of a surface layer. Ironically, I would describe depression as a sinkhole in the mind caused by the identity's surface layer. The key difference is, with depression, often you can be hundreds of meters underground before you realize anything's wrong. And that's what happened to me. I didn't know I was depressed. I didn't know, I just knew nothing was working. And so I did the only thing I did know how to do. I worked out. I swam, I lifted, I biked, I ran. I got on a diet, got shredded. Spoiler alert, doesn't help. And by the end of it, I was running through the forest four hours a day. But no matter how fast I ran, I couldn't outrun the thoughts in my mind. And in 2013, six months after this photo was taken, I tried to take my life. It wasn't a plan. I didn't even really want it to happen. It just sort of happened. And there's two ways this plays out. The first, in Global Destructive Force, Jean-Claude Van Damme just got knocked down. Jean-Claude Van Damme, who plays me, just got knocked down by his manager, Sylvester Stallone. And suddenly, while he's trying to gather himself, he gets a flashback and the words of his father echo. <laughs> Son, remember, each time you get knocked down, you get right back up on that bike again. This is how you defeat your enemies. And suddenly, 
Van Damme springs to his feet, knocking out Sylvester Stallone. And then he goes on to save Kylie Minogue just in time for her to record the end credits, the song that plays over the end credits of this movie. And yeah, I've totally watched this. You might be surprised, but my experience was a little different. Turns out you're not guaranteed an epiphany when you hit rock bottom. When I, when I hit rock bottom, it wasn't the moment where I changed my life. I didn't move, quit my job. I didn't move to the beach. I didn't even get a flashback. You know what I actually did? When I woke up the next morning and I was still alive, just got dressed and went to work. By the way, that's what a lot of survivors do. I didn't tell anyone. Not at work, not in my family, not even my psychiatrist. My life was killing me and I didn't know how to change. I didn't even know how to start. And so I did the only thing I did know how to do. I kept working. A year later, I got a job as a reliability consultant, consulting across heavy industry, mining, pulp and paper, manufacturing, over 60 sites in total. And when I traveled to these sites, I started to notice a trend. I would go and find the most experienced mechanic, millwright, operator, technician, and I ask them, hey, you know, what's wrong with this site and how to fix it? They always had an answer. And then you know what they'd say to me? I don't even tell anyone anymore. Nobody listens. Looking back at it now, I realize those people were just as depressed as I was. We were all in our individual sinkholes, just waiting for someone to ask, someone to listen, someone to care. And also as I traveled across these sites, I saw the work environments that we work in, the bullying, the harassment, the harsh environments. We already endure some of the harshest conditions on the planet, whether that's the Australian outback at plus 50 degrees or the Canadian Arctic at minus 50 degrees. We already fly in, fly out, work 12-hour shifts and don't see our families weeks at a time. If this job was a cupcake made out of you know, tar and gravel, toxic management is the cherry on top. And by cherry, I mean 16-ton weight. Is there any wonder why we commit suicide at rates far higher than anyone else? A few years later, I started a podcast in maintenance and reliability because I wanted to know why we weren't getting the results that we worked so hard for. And coming from engineering, I thought, the result, I thought the reason was in the technical stuff. The processes, the procedures, the technology. But one by one, the guests that came on the show, the barriers that they all said were two things. Implementation and culture. And it took me a while, but finally it clicked. This all boils down to leadership. 
And that led me to a leadership coach who's now my boss. She taught me what leadership could be. She also taught me about emotional intelligence and that had me starting to connect with parts of me that I'd locked away. That led me back into therapy. And when I was in therapy, I realized I needed more help, which led me to a great psychiatrist who manages my medication. Those were my puzzle pieces. The therapy helped me heal the trauma that I had and to find out who I was underneath the discarded mask of reliable Rob. The medication was a helping hand out of the sinkhole. And the coaching taught me who I could become. Someone who helps people avoid the suffering that I went through. And that's why I'm here today. I walked the shop floors with people like you. I suffered the toxic cultures like many of you have. And most importantly, I can show you a better way. Just this year alone, I've coached over 80 leaders and with their direct reports, I've impacted over a thousand people. Those people are happier, they're healthier, and they get better results. I'm sure many of you have seen these before. <laughs> Almost all the heavy companies in heavy industry have a value statement. Health and safety is number one. People are number one. I've seen them posted on every wall I've ever been to at a site. And also, I took these off a few websites in our industries. But when it comes down to the mental health of our people, nothing could be further from the truth. We hold on to this outdated idea that the only way is sucking it up, pushing it down, dismissing change, and ridiculing emotion. Even when we know that this culture sabotages growth, sabotages our happiness, and even the performance of the company. But we just keep saying, you know, that's the way it's always been. We could literally be an industry that unironically hands out trophies saying, I didn't commit suicide today. We have a massive gap between what we know we should be doing and what we're doing. So how do we bridge that gap? We're leaders. It's time to lead. We have to acknowledge what's in the best interest for us our people and our companies and dismantle the toxic cultures that are literally killing people. Now, I know a few of you are still thinking about this graph from earlier. Hmm, I'm 34% really small. Maybe I'm an asshole and I didn't know it. I don't know. Okay, slow down, take a deep breath. If you're actively thinking about whether or not you're a toxic boss, you're probably not a toxic boss. In fact, narcissists don't look at this graph and go, hmm, I'm an abusive narcissist. And arrogant and violent people don't, don't look at this graph and go, I'm arrogant, I'm violent, 
I love violence. Violence gets me results. Win, win. That doesn't happen. But if you have a manager like that, my two cents is report them and run. <laughs> Seriously. A 2021 Forbes study said that only 5% of actively toxic bosses will actually acknowledge their behavior and strive to change. The other 95% won't do anything. So actively toxic bosses can't really be changed. They have to be removed. And the faster you remove them, the less they can grind your company into the ground. So you're probably not one of these bad bosses, but you might have some of these bad tra these traits, and that's fine too. According to the current science, being an asshole is not a genetic condition. Nobody's born a bad boss. And if you have one or more of these behaviors, you're not doomed. In fact, I've had some of these behaviors, and I've had my identity crisis with them too. Remember when I said I used to be a polo coach? Man, I was in shape. <laughs> well, I'd rather be fat and happy than thin and suicidal. <laughs> Anyways, after college, I was uh, assistant polo coach for my team out in Ottawa. And one time, we were, I was putting the guys through a really hard workout. And our hardest working guy, right in the middle of the set, he gets out of the pool and starts walking down the deck. And steam starts coming out of my ears. <laughs> and I'm walking towards it. I'm thinking a million things of what I'm going to say to him. You're embarrassing me, you dingbat. And whoop, I screeched to a halt. He was pulling insulin needles out of his bags to give himself an injection. He was a diabetic. In that moment, I realized I'm an asshole. But did in that one case mean that I was doomed to join the ranks of Will Ferrell and those bad coaches from earlier? No. Because Will Ferrell's putting on an act. This is the role that he's learned how to play. He's not really that guy. And that's not really different than you and I. I mean, I don't know, but when you started off your careers and you had the job interview and they asked you that question, where do you see yourself in five years? And you replied, I am gonna be the greatest asshole in the world. Yeah, probably didn't happen, right? The truth is, just as toxic leadership's learned, great leadership's also learned. From kindergarten to sports, our model of leadership is who's the biggest person in the room, whether that's the teacher, the bully, or the coach. So over time, we start believing that that's what everyone's doing and that's how what gets you recognition and results. We learn piling all these rotten ingredients from the table of toxic leaders is the way to get us ahead. No wonder we become bad bosses when we get in a position of authority. It's just systemic. 
And these behaviors create the low trust, high fear environments where the top leaders are the ones who are the best at silencing others, pushing others down, at claiming credit and dis deflecting blame. And they create the cultures around ego, deceit, trust and the ego, deceit, control and fear. And those places are the ones where employees will walk into your office, look you in the eye and say, I quit, you're an asshole. They're also the places where other employees will, won't, won't record a quit talk video. They won't speak up. They'll internalize the bullying, the harassment, until they hit their breaking point. And then they'll take their lives. And that's why it's so important. We need to realize that when we carry these behaviors, and once we become aware of them, we do something to change. Because in the end, there are no bad bosses. There's just bad bossery. And that distinction's really important because one is a person. The other is a set of behaviors. And behaviors, you can analyze, you can look at them, you can even apologize for them, and you can take steps so they never happen again. And am I an asshole because I almost went ballistic on a guy who's diabetic? No, I almost did an asshole thing. And knowing that, I can make myself aware that this is a behavior that I've learned. And that's the first step, self-awareness. Organizational psychologist Dr. Tasha Yurik did a study and found that 95% of people think they're self-aware, but only 5% actually are. It's just like driving. We all think we're great drivers, but we're probably all average. Most of us fly on autopilot with huge blind spots about why we behave and why. And self-awareness simply means that you know who you are, your values, your strengths, your weaknesses, and the worth that you have as a person. And as you develop your self-awareness, you become more authentic as a leader, showing up unafraid of who you are, and that builds trust and connection, which empowers your people to tell you what's truly happening, both in their jobs and their lives. And that gives you valuable insight on how to make the best decisions, both for performance and job, and also for their mental health. But that's only the first step. You can only get so far with self-awareness. The second step is self-management. And self-management simply is understanding your emotions and then being able to choose how you want to feel, which sounds like something out of Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop catalog, but it's actually a skill. I learned it in my 30s, and I teach it to people now. Self-awareness and self-management are two core building blocks of emotional intelligence. There are more, but just with those skills, 
gets you way ahead. Through those skills, you can easily gain new perspectives on the decisions and actions you take. And also, because on average, most leaders manage people for 12 years before they re receive leadership training. And the majority of leadership training doesn't get results because it fails to address the most important thing, the mindset. Which brings me back to Winston. I started this talk with Winston for two reasons. The first one was I wanted to hold a speech that would demonstrate how long he chewed on that tree. And let's check in with him now. Oh, 40 minutes. Okay. He's about done now. The second reason was that this case with Winston actually demonstrates a lot of what we've been talking about with, with respect to leadership. When Winston was chewing on the tree, I felt powerless. And my emotional reaction was to feel frustrated. Then my behavior was to double down on doing things to get him to comply. But by using emotional intelligence, we can dig into the beliefs that fuel our emotions and then choose how to respond. Was I truly powerless? No. There was a million things I could have done. That helps me shift from frustration to neutral. Now I can look at Winston again and go, huh, it's actually kind of funny that he's trying to eat an entire tree. And the second step is once you cultivate emotional intelligence, you can start to access empathy, which is seeing the perspective of someone else. So what was Winston's perspective? He's loved sticks his entire life. And today, he saw the biggest, best stick ever. He had to use all his doggy powers to bring it home. How could I expect him to behave any differently? And so I sat and watched. And Winston struggled and chewed and struggled and chewed. He was working on a goal much larger than himself. And he was joyous doing it. And after 41 minutes, he came back to me with a big smile on his face. As if to say, look what I've achieved today. And that's how self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and empathy, these positive leadership skills changed how I walk my dog forever. So to answer the question, how do I avoid becoming an asshole boss, is to remove the asshole. That is, unlearn the assholery and replace it with self-awareness and emotional intelligence and empathy. And who knows, you might literally be saving lives. Thank you. Fantastic.
Uh, Rob Paparovsky, ladies and gentlemen. Give Robert another round of applause.